0: If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Now, this is one of those books that um, there's not a bad story in this book. This book um, is just scintillating with stories. It's just um, Hollywood can make a dozen movies out of this book right here. Uh, it's, it's basically uh, it's 1 Samuel. We think Samuel wrote it. Uh, Samuel was both the last prophet... Uh, but he was also the one, I'm sorry, the last judge. But uh, Samuel was the guy who essentially, if you remember at the end of the book of Judges, uh, what what were things like in the nation of Israel? Do you remember? What was Judges? Remember we walked through Judges? What was going on in the book of Judges? What was happening to the nation? Was it getting better or was it getting worse? It's getting worse. That's right. So they continued to spiral out. Do you remember who the last judge was? In the book of Judges, that really was a picture of the nation. It's the one that everybody loves for some reason. Samson, that's right. Um, And so you've got just darkness over the land in Israel. When Samuel comes on the scene, Samuel is like a guy that's holding the nation together. Uh, It is a divided nation. um, And Samuel is the guy that God's going to raise up to hold this thing together. ...until the people cry out for a king. So the entire book of Samuel is basically about three people. It's about Samuel, which is in about the first seven chapters. Samuel's throughout the book, but these are going to be where the emphases are. Samuel is from chapters 1 to 7. Then you're going to have Saul, the first king of Israel, who's going to be mainly from chapters 8 to 15. And then you're going to have David. And David's going to come in from about chapter 9 and 10... And you're going to see him emphasized kind of to the end of the book. So Samuel, Saul, and David are the three main figures that the entire narrative is going to focus around. Okay? So um, what I want to do is I thought because there's so many stories in this book, what I want to do instead is I made up a list of about 13 questions here that we're going to interact together on. And I think if we can answer these questions and walk through these, I think you guys will have a good sense of kind of the book, of the story of what's going on here, okay? So, if you look here at number one, the first question that I asked is, um, Hannah is depicted as the lesser of the two women in chapter one. Now, when I say the two women, anybody who's read the book of 1 Samuel, anyone know who the other woman is I'm talking about? Elkanah was married to, uh, to, to, had two wives. Well, that's another discussion for another time. But he had two wives. Uh, One was Hannah, and the other was, you see it? Penina. That's right. Hannah and Penina. Now, Penina, her womb was open, and she had multiple children. Hannah's womb was closed, okay? So here's the question. Hannah is depicted as the lesser of the two women in chapter 1. Why does God make such a big point of taking a barren woman and giving her a child. Now, have we seen that theme elsewhere in the Bible? Do you guys ever see that theme? And God always takes the barren woman, but it also says that the Lord closed her womb. Okay, so that she's described as barren by the people around her. And God seems to always take the barren woman and take her, and then He gives her the child and not the other woman. Why do you suppose God does that? Tom, any ideas why you think God would take a barren woman as opposed to a woman who is fertile and giving birth to lots of kids. There you go. That's great. Absolutely. Number one, uh, you would know that this was an act of God for sure. So that's first and foremost, I think, the important thing to recognize. What else would it show or signify? Not just God's power, but what else? What else does it show? Okay, number there, there, that's great. The chi- there's something special about the child. Each time that you see a barren woman that God then blesses with the child, usually you see something pretty profound that God does with that child. So that's great. There's a plan. So you've got God's power. You've got God's plan. Gosh, we're doing peas and we're not even trying. That's pretty good. Uh, Ron, this is your message right here. Power, plan, purpose. What else? <laughs> what else we got? God is also the one who will take out of death where there is no life and God is the one that brings forth life. I think that's one of the key points when you see this is that this is kind of uh, emblematic of the nation. Here is the nation where there is darkness in the land. There is death in the land. The people are separate from God and God now will take a woman and where there is no life, God will now bring forth life. Does that sound like what he can do with a nation? You bet. And so he takes Hannah, and he says, Hannah, I will bless you, and you will have a child, you see. And so he, she ends up having a child, and who's the child that she has? Samuel. And Samuel will end up being, arguably, in your Old Testament, maybe Moses might be vying uh, for, for first place on this, But Samuel is probably the greatest person in your entire Old Testament. He is just a remarkable, remarkable person. Um, Outside of one thing in Samuel's life, which is his boys, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, uh, you hardly see anything, any defects in Samuel. So we'll see that in a minute. Secondly, number two, after Hannah gives up Samuel to the Lord. Now remember, in chapter 1, hannah cries out to god would you give me just one child and if you do what does she say she'll do she'll dedicate him to the lord right she will offer him up she won't ever cut his hair essentially what's the what's the nature of the vow anybody know the vow that that hannah is making what's that yeah what was the Nazarite vow ron remember yeah what would they do Yep. Right. And grapes and drink strong drink. Yeah, no, no drunkards. Yeah, not even no drunkards, no drinkers. <laughs> That's right. You could, you're a teetotaler exactly. Um, and um, yeah, right. You couldn't even touch the grapes. That's right. So it was a serious vow, and usually it was a temporary vow. But Hannah's making this vow for this child. I'm going to offer him up to the Lord for the rest of his life. Well, does God honor the vow? Her cry? He does. He gives her a child. And so question number two, after Hannah gives Samuel up to the Lord, what are some significant features of her prayer in chapter two that she's able to say about the Lord? Now look with me here at Hannah's prayer. It's a beautiful prayer in chapter two. Look at that for just a second. Tell me something. Now think about this for a moment, ladies, especially ladies. Here you are dying for a child. You're barren. You can't have one. You cry out to the Lord and you say to the Lord, if you give me this, child, this one child, I will offer him up as a dedication to you and I will give him up. So in other words, as soon as I'm done weaning the child, which in these days weaning probably took a little longer, maybe the child was... Between two and three, possibly. Um, once that process was done, she now would take the child and she took it and gave him to who? Remember who the high priest was? Who the priest was? Eli gave him to Eli, and then she would leave and she would come back once a year to come see the child. Now that would be a tough thing, don't you think? To have weaned your child for two to maybe three years and suddenly this one gift you've been wanting all of. All of those years you finally get, and now you've got to fulfill your promise to the Lord, and now you go and give your child to Eli, a man to raise, and that's it. And now this is her prayer right after that. Now look at her prayer. What kind of, what's remarkable about her prayer? What does she say? Anybody, you can just read through your prayer if you have your Bibles. If you don't, then uh, maybe I should read the prayer to you. Listen to what she says. My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. So immediately, what do you see in Hannah's heart? Absolute joy and happiness. She's just, what's that? Just praise. She's just praising the Lord that she has. the Lord has given her this child. There is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by Him deeds are weighed. In other words, God knows the hearts of all men. Namely, whose heart is she probably thinking of? Her own. The Lord knew her heart. See, He knows it all. Says the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. So who does he strengthen? The weak. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. Who else does he provide for? But yeah, those who are starving, the impoverished. She who was barren has borne seven children. Uh, But she who has had many sons pines away. Who does he bless? The weak and the barren. See her prayer. Isn't it a beautiful prayer? That Hannah can now cry out to the Lord. And just in great thanks for the little time that she had with Samuel. She can praise the Lord for what he's given her. And plus, seeing that she knows. I think she probably has an idea that there's something about Samuel that's going to be unique. She's praying that God is our deliverer. He's our rock. Well, in three, we move on in the story here. We've just got 27 more chapters to go. Eli's sons are wicked boys. All right, parents. Why do you suppose... um, Why do you suppose... Whatever. I don't know. That doesn't make sense. Why do you suppose... What do you suppose... There you go. Thank you. Trying to get my grammar right here. Scratch out why. Stick in what. What do you suppose are some reasons that a godly man like Eli would have two wicked boys? Uh, Notice later, uh, it's, (laughs) it's... That's actually Aramaic for it. So go ahead and... Sometimes I confuse the languages. Yeah, it just... When the Holy Spirit moves, I just start speaking in His language. Notice later, it's the same for Samuel's kids. Samuel's boys are wicked... Eli's kids are wicked. Here's two men who look like, at least Samuel for sure, Eli looks like a good man. His heart is good. Their boys are wicked. Why do you suppose wicked boys from these two guys in particular are the result? There you go. I think that's good. You know, that's actually what a lot of the commentators will say, is that when you look at Eli and Samuel, these guys basically were responsible for a nation. And back when you didn't have uh, Southwest, you know, airlines to fly from, you know, Gad to Ekron or whatever, uh, you're walking. You know, you're you're gone a lot. They were not around necessarily to really rear their children, their boys, in the ways of the Lord. It was, it's the one failure. In fact, uh, David. David the same way. It's interesting. You see a lot of these really godly people in your in your Old Testament. And when God does great things with them, there's always this consequence, it seems like, that when they're not home a lot, when they're, not, when they're always gone off to battle or gone to the cities to make sacrifices or the prophets are gone, you see that a lot of times they have these rogue kids um, so here, Eli probably did not spend the time rearing his sons the way that he should have. Uh, that's in chapter 3, 2 and 3 actually. Chapter 4, what was the problem with the Israelites when they lost to the Philistines in chapter 4? Remember now, the Philistines, they are kind of the principal enemy here. You end the book of Judges, who was it? What did Samson do at the very end of his life that took his own life? Remember what he did? What did he do? Yeah, he he breaks the pillars, remember, of the temple, and it comes in, and how many Philistines does it kill? 3,000 Philistines, that's right, which wasn't by any means all of them. Here, the Philistines are still around. They're the ones that are going to be persecuting the nation. So, the Israelites now um, are suffering. Look in chapter 4 now. They are They're afraid, and so in verse 1... Samuel's words came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. So Israel is losing. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring this defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Well, what's the answer so far? Why did the Lord let this happen to them? What's that? One, they haven't learned their lesson. They're an unrepentant people. They're an unholy people, right? God still has to raise somebody up to bring the nation back to Him. But they don't get it yet. So you know what they do? Let us what? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh... So that they may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So what's their thought now? We're going to win this battle. How are we going to win this battle? I know. Let's go get the ark and let's take it with us to battle. So what are they thinking? Yeah, let's kind of make God be on our side. If we've got our, our, our lucky rabbit's foot. Everyone got your rabbit's foot? Yep, check your pocket. Yep, I got mine. Whew. Good, we're going to win this, right? How are they treating the Ark of the Lord? Was it as the holy presence of God? No, it's hey, let's take this box with us. If we take it, we're surely we're going to win this battle here. Well, how does it go? Well, move on up here. Verse six. The Philistines hear about what they're doing, and the Philistines are afraid because this is what they say. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp. They said, We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Wow, that that, uh, legend is still going on. Be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And here's the result, verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That's what you call a bad day right there. I mean, that's the worst case scenario right there. So, why did they lose battle right there? Why did they lose again? That's right. That's right. And in fact, even kind of more insidious, Mark, is that they thought they went to God by doing what? Taking the ark. So they were even more self-deceived. They're thinking, if I take the ark, I have gone to God. I mean, does that sound familiar at all? Was this something that just happened back then? Or do we actually think, you know, you ever go through that or see people that go through that whole thing of, man, I need to start going to church. You know, I need to start uh, getting God on my side. You know, and we start doing all kinds of things to get God on our side. I gotta start reading my Bible. Bad things start happening, you think it's because you're not reading your Bible. I mean people really begin thinking that. That God is letting bad things happen to me because I'm not reading my Bible, because I'm not going to church, because I'm not at small groups, because I'm not at the point on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock to eight twenty. Which that may be one reason that bad things happen to you is because of that. Alright. Little we'll plug there. But it's crazy. It's it's the oldest thing in religion is because I'm not doing, then therefore this is why uh, calamity is happening in my life. Now, I don't want to say that bad things don't happen because we're not... They do sometimes happen because we're not building a foundation that can support life. But what I am trying to say is that this connection between doing some religious thing and bringing God in does not in any way secure or guarantee success. And that was their problem here. The Ark of the Covenant was a rabbit's foot, see? It wasn't truly the holy presence of God. So that was their problem. Next, in chapters 5 and 6. How does God show that He will not share His glory with another? Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines, right? They think, ah, we've got the God of the Israelites, the God that brought the plagues to the Egyptians. Now we've got Dagon, their own God, and this other god or gods. Man, we're really going to be powerful. And what happens? You remember what happens? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Three cities later, so Dagon falls in his face. Eventually, his hands. And his head breaks off. All that exists is the body. Probably, probably uh, emblematic of the fact that Dagon doesn't work and, and can't communicate any kind of knowledge. His, his hands and his head falls off. But yeah, then they send this thing away. And every city they send him to, among the Philistines, tumors and rats come among the people. And finally they say, I think we need to send this thing back. You remember how they sent it back? Right. That's right. Yeah, but nobody went with it. They just they just attached the calves to it and it was kind of a test, wasn't it? Yeah. If it went this way, then this is, you know, th- these things came from the Lord. If it went this way, then it was just kind of a fluke deal. And the calves just happened to go this way, and they said, Ah, this is of the Lord, let's send it back, let it go. See? And so God makes the point that we're, He's not going to share His glory with Dagon. There's no other God that God is going to allow them. Because remember, they put the ark right next to the statue of Dagon. Well, then the Israelites get the ark, and something tragic happens in chapter 6. Do you remember what happens? What happens in chapter 6? 70 people die for some reason. What did they do? They got the ark and they opened it. And they looked in to the ark. And immediately, 70 of them were killed. Look down here in chapter 6, verse 19. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. See? That even His own people have got to abide. They don't have a king's axe because there is people. The ark of the Lord is just as much of a judgment to the Philistines and it's just as much of a judgment to His own people if you don't abide by the the way God wanted things to be done at that time. So 70 die. So, the principle you see here is that God will not share His glory with anybody. You go on through this now and chapter 8 is a very important chapter. What's the motivation for the people Wanting a king, in chapter eight. Remember, the looking at the nation, the Philistines are, are routing them. They want cohesiveness. What's that, Mark? Yeah. Number one, everyone else had a king. What are you thinking, Tom? Yeah. Give us, give us, uh, give us a human being that can lead us like all these other nations. We want to look just like them. They've got kings. Why can't we have a king? And what does Samuel say initially? He says, you don't want to do this. You don't want to be ruled by a king. Because what's the problem with being ruled by a king? What's that? Okay, yeah, a king can go bad. And by the way, when you read First and Second Kings, how did the kings do? Bad. <laughs> That's right. You have... You had a handful that were pretty good, but even the pretty good ones did some bad things, right? Uh, even David, the greatest of all the kings, uh, we've got written in, you know, written in ink, his blight for all eternity. So the problem with having a king is that if you rule, get ruled by a human king, you're dependent on him doing what? Leaning on God, listening to God. that's not a good thing to depend on a lot of times. And so Samuel says, don't do it. And they raise up, we want a king. And so Samuel goes to the Lord and says, Lord, I don't know what to do with these people. They want a king. What does God tell them? Give it to them. But God says something really interesting. He says, Samuel, for they are not rejecting you. What are they doing? He says, they're rejecting me. I've led them all of this time. They've seen my power, my miracles. They've seen it in their fathers, their forefathers. They've seen it personally with the Ark of the Covenant. And yet, all of these things that they can see, they still will not let me rule them. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? That is it possible to see God's blessing and faithfulness and God's leading, and yet, we still will not let Him lead? You bet. We're always looking for the king. We're looking for somebody to tell us what to do. You know, we're looking for, you know, we all want um, a word from God, but few of us are really willing to dig into the word of God. You ever notice that? Everybody's wanting a word from God. We go out there, we're looking at all these books out there to try to help us to do our lives. Yet, God has given us wonderful principles in His Word to lead us. And here the people say, no, 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 we want a king to tell us what to do. So He says, give it to them. And look at the, the, the description here. Uh, what kind of a king do they get? Chapter 9. There was a Benjamin. What did you say? A tall one. Yes. Yep. Well, it describes them in chapter 9 and verse 2. Uh, Kish had a son named Saul, an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. So, how many inches is a head, Ron? Is it a foot? <laughs> That's right. Let's say 8 inches, 10 inches. If the average person was, let's say, 5'10", this guy, Saul was 6'6". Six, six. He's about six six, maybe six seven. Tall guy, man, handsome, head above the, the rest, and gifted. I mean, this is exactly what the nation wanted. They saw Saul. They saw. They saw Saul. They saw Saul. Say that five times fast, or just spit. And man, they looked at him and they said, "Yes, that's what we want right there." And God says, all right, here you go. I'm going to give you exactly what you want. Here, take Saul. Look at him. Mm, mm, mm. Ladies were singing. The sky was blue. It was a good day right here. Well, Saul starts off. And um, how does Saul start off, by the way? You guys remember the life of Saul? How does he start off? He start, well, he starts off looking for his father for his father's donkeys, right? He starts off pretty good. He's sensitive to his dad. He's a good listener. Uh, he seems to work hard. He goes all day and all night, goes far into the land looking for his dad's donkeys. Um, he listens to Samuel. He heeds his advice. He starts off pretty good. But there's something inside of Saul. There's these seeds, these spores inside of Saul that are just waiting to uh, to blossom. And sure enough, you start seeing some things in Saul that are kind of dangerous. Uh, look in uh, chapter 10, verse 1. It kind of tells you where Saul's headed. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord, the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? So how much oil did Saul get anointed with? A flask. Now, go to 1613. Samuel's going to also anoint David. How much oil does he anoint David with? So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. A flask, this much for Saul. Doot, doot, doot. Bless you, brother, in the name of the Lord. David gets a horn. I mean, this isn't like a little bugle horn. This is one of those big horns. And he pours that thing and fills that thing up. And they pour it, and and David is just dripping wet with oil. What's What's the symbolic picture here? The blessing. Yet David will be the greatest. Saul may be the first. But he's going to die badly. He's going to end really, really bad. David is going to be the greatest. Because uh, God recognized that there was something about David that was very unique. Um, And that was that there was something in the heart of David that he knew. Though David was like any other man. Was David like any other man? Not in his heart. But he was like any other man in the sense that he was a man of flesh. Did David have a temper? Yeah, he did. I mean, remember, uh, who was that? Uh, Abigail and Naboth? Abigail and Naboth. Wicked Naboth. Remember that? And uh, Naboth kind of disrespected David. Remember what David wanted to do? He got all of his soldiers and got his men and got his sword, and he was going to go wipe out Naboth and all of his men. David had this anger problem. David really kind of battled the flesh a lot of times. Um, David had a mind for deceit, even. He had a mind that could do what he did with Bathsheba, set the whole thing up with Uriah and his men, and try to hide behind the whole thing. So, in that sense, David was the typical man. And yet, there's still something in David that God looked at that God said, I love this about David. David. Though he struggles in all these other areas, he still has a heart for me. Isn't that that interesting? That paradox that's there, that amidst all the wrestlings and the struggles, that this heart can still beat after God? Well, Saul gets this flask of oil. Now, number eight. What were Saul's main failures? Well, let's take a look here at a couple of these and see if they kind of speak to us at all. In chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, Samuel essentially tells Saul, listen, don't do anything. Don't offer the sacrifices until I get there. You wait for me. I'll be there in seven days. You hang tight. Don't do anything until I get there. Okay? Verse 13. 1 of chapter 13. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel uh, 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outposts, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And here's what happened. Verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, and among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. What's that called, by the way? Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. What are they doing? They're running away. Yeah, what's that called in the military when you run from battle? Desertion. How's that treated usually in the military? Severely. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Now, listen. How should they be by now? I mean, have they not just seen an amazing demonstration of God's power? What did they just see, specifically with the Philistines? The the Ark, God was with them. See, and it went to the Philistines, and God had these Philistines dying of tumors and sickness and disease. And then the ark comes back. I mean they saw the power of God, and yet they're quaking in fear. Verse 8. Look what Saul does. Here's the test. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Why didn't Samuel come to Gilgal after seven days? What's he, what's he wanting to do? Test 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 him. Are you going to listen to God? I'm going to wait and come back after seven days and see how you do. Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, here he is, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. What's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong about that? What's wrong about that? Yeah, that's the high priest's job. Is that the king's job? And he offers it up. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel? Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmos, what has he just done? Yeah, he's blamed everyone else. That used to happen a lot back then. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly. And look what the punishment is. Remember what it was? Fourteen. Your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. So, right off the bat, you see now, here is, it's like this. In every every person's life, every one of our lives, Saul's a great picture of this. There are these little, little fissures and these little cracks that are indetectable, oftentimes even to ourselves. And what happens when you put an enormous amount of pressure on something that has little hairline fractures in it? What happens? They, it breaks, and they become very visible, don't they? See, in every one of us, in a fallen world, and Saul is no different, have these hairline fissures and cracks that are in us. And they're imperceptible to us. Now, some of them are perceptible, right? We call those flaws, right? But the things that you can't see, those are the ones that really will do a number on you. Because you begin entering into situations not really knowing what you're really made of, see? And so what God does is God spends about 70 years in our life continually placing things on us that do what? expose them. See? So what he does is he says, okay, yeah, you look like a pretty nice, selfless individual. Hey, let's go ahead and do this thing called marriage. Right? Let's put about 10,000 pounds on that 6,000 pound load-bearing thing and let's see what shows up. Oh my gosh! Right? And then you get those wonderful phrases from people like, you're not the same person that I met before. No kidding. I didn't even know this is who I was, you see. And God will not put us in all kinds of situations. He'll allow things to happen to suddenly expose the true solidness of our faith. Maybe I lose a job. Maybe something in life that's tragic happens to me. And what these things do, if we rightly approach them, is they suddenly reveal these hairline fractures that suddenly we go that's got to be fixed that's got to be fixed and I would never would have known about that thing had there not been this weight. what is Saul's hairline fracture what is it impatience what else he is insecure what else control Saul has this thing in him I will offer up the burnt offering. I will lead my men. I'll tell them what to do, you see. And eventually you're going to see, and we're not going to get through the entire book, when this little kid comes on the scene that whips this Philistine giant for Saul's sake on his behalf. How does Saul respond to that? What's he think about little David taking down that Philistine? Does he like that? No. What does he not like about it? He liked that he took down Goliath because now he doesn't have to fear Goliath anymore. He wouldn't come fight him. But what does he hate now? What's that? That's it. All of a sudden, do you remember the maiden song? Remember how it went? With the tambourines and the jingle bells? Yes. Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his ten thousands, all of a sudden... There's those hairline fractures right there that are in him. Saul may not even been totally aware of them, and suddenly he hears the ladies sing David's praise, and all of a sudden, massive insecurities come out of him. And how does he respond? Rather than simply acknowledging where he is, confessing it to the Lord, and praising the Lord, what does he do? He tries to kill David. I'm going to get this kid out. He has taken up the spotlight. And he is revealing things in me that I don't like how I feel. So what he does is he takes the weak road and not the strong road, right? And isn't that what we do when hairline fractures are revealed? We've got a choice. I can either leave or I can face, right? It's one or the other. And suddenly, Saul gets revealed. And that's why God does it. That's why Samuel did that. I'm going to show you and I'm going to show the nation some things about you that not even you really know. We've got two minutes and we're done. Two minutes, Ron? Let's do this last question right here, number nine. Samuel picks David of all of Jesse's sons. Remember in chapter 16 how this happened? Samuel goes to Jesse's. The Lord says, you got a son. I need to look at your son. He's going to lead the nation. The Lord wants to anoint him. first person he sends is Abinadab. Strong. Tall, good-looking guy, right? And he sends sends Abinadab. And what does Samuel go say? No, that's not him. Next guy, another strapping stud. Nope. Third one. Nope. Fourth one. Nope. Goes through all seven of Jesse's sons. Jesse says, that's all I have. I mean, I've got one more. He's a little ruddy creature. He's out in the field tending the sheep like, you know... A weak little boy. He says, show him to him. And he looks and it's David. And what does he say? That's the one. Bring him to me. Remember? And he brings over, to, brings David over to him. And he anoints him. Why does God do that again? Can we just make this point crystal clear this morning? I mean, he's got seven strapping kids. And he takes David. The last born. We all know how last borns are. Why does he take them? That's it. This is about, not about David. This is about God showing his own power reflected in David. See? From what is weak, I will make strong. From what is barren, I will bring forth life. From where there is death, I will resurrect and bring life again and life anew. Isn't that how God is? He takes the weaknesses of our lives and our experiences and He brings strength and He glorifies Himself through it. That's Samuel right here. That's the entire book of 1 Samuel. It's, I'm going to take a barren woman and bring forth a child. His name is Samuel. He will rule the nation and he will be strong. And he will come from a barren womb that was dead and it will bring life because of me. And I will give the nation a strong man named Saul Who looks good, but how does he do? He ends bad. Remember how he ends his life, by the way? Yeah, he falls on his own sword, commits suicide on the battlefield because he doesn't want the enemy to kill him or take him. And then the other guy, David, he's the smallest, the runniest, the nothingness of all the sons. And God says, That's the one I want, and I'm going to make something of him. Isn't that good?